people want to know that other people have had a good experience with your brand and that they can trust it. And that's a big, big part of it. Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn how to figure out what differentiates you from your competitors, why you should purchase from potential competitors, and how do you decide what to copy from the marketplace and what you should do differently. Before our show, I wanted to chat about Shopify shipping. Did you know that you can buy shipping labels for your orders at home and print them with a regular printer, get shipping insurance within the United States, and receive discounted shipping rates with certain carriers with Shopify shipping? There are no additional fees, carrier account, or app required. This is included with your Shopify plan, so check out Shopify shipping today at shopify.com ship. Today I'm joined by Jonathan and Michelle from Manly Bands. Manly Bands sells the most badass wedding rings on earth using unique materials like dino bone, meteorite, deer antler, helping men get a ring that matches their personality and was started in 2016 and based out of Linden, Utah. Welcome, Jonathan and Michelle. Hey, thanks for having us, Felix. Yeah, so super cool product. I don't have a badass wedding ring. I wish I knew about this at that time that I was getting married. But tell us more about how the idea behind the business came about. Yeah, for sure. For sure. We hear that all the time, by the way, you know, it's, and it's, it's nice to hear because, you know, one thing we really set out to do is make it so guys can get excited about having a, a wedding band that they really can connect with um, that has these cool and unique materials like dinosaur bone, deer antler, meteorite. And, um, and that was kind of our goal from the beginning. So uh, you want to go into how we started? Sure, sure. So we were shopping for John's wedding band and um, it was just a nightmare. We kept going into jewelry stores and John has these massive hands, which you guys can't see, but John has massive hands. <laughs> you might post a picture somewhere just just to uh, confirm that that uh, that the hands are massive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, they're like four feet big. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, no, go ahead, please. Yeah, yeah, sure. So John has these massive hands, and so we went into jewelry stores, and a typical men's size is about a size ten. John has a sixteen point five, and so uh, the jeweler's sizes only really go up to a size thirteen, and in like your regular jewelry store. Yeah. And so none of them could size him, and then also they were only showing him these really boring white gold bands, and they were super expensive. And our budget, I think, was like three four hundred bucks for his ring. Yeah, and for starters, that point five is very important um, above sixteen. <laughs> so you know, when you go into a jewelry store, they look at you like you know you're some sort of. Uh, very, very crazy person. And, um, they, they couldn't even size me. Uh, and it was a real problem. And so I remember first going in there because we wanted to get Michelle a, a wedding band and, and she obviously had her engagement ring at that point, And she was super excited because when it comes to wedding bands, women's ha- women have so many options and, uh, there were all these different styles, different price points. She, she could choose from a, just a plethora of rings and, you know, at the end of that whole experience, I remember saying to the jeweler, I said, so how about me? Like, can I get my band here too? And he's like, oh yeah, absolutely. Just, just go to the back corner of the store over there. We got some options for guys over there. And I'm like, oh, great. So I, I make my way past all of these women's rings into the back section of the store where there was a, a very small case that probably had five or six options and, uh, you know, very traditional options. And uh, they were all, of course, not my size. They were quite expensive and, you know, I really didn't connect with any of them. And I remember saying to Michelle later, you know, you have all these choices and you're getting so excited about your wedding band. I just, I wish I felt the same way. I mean, I, I understand what it represents, but I want to also feel like it's a style that I can connect with. I'm going to wear it the rest of my life. Like, let me get something cool. And uh, there just weren't any options for that. Yeah. And, you know, when usually people have a counter problem like this, they'll, you know, kind of chalk it up and be like, well, like you mentioned, like maybe this is just all that exists and I'll just kind of deal with it. But what what was the kind of leap or that that, that jump to realizing that this was a, a problem that other people had and then also that there was a business opportunity there? So after the wedding, we decided to put our heads together and, and figure out how we can uh, pay the bills. And so we, we said, OK, well, let's try to solve a problem that we understand. What problem uh, can we solve that we had? And so we put our heads together and said, okay, well, remember that experience we had buying our ring. It was um, not a great experience. And I bet that we could find a way to make that better for everybody, provide better styles, more options, great customer service. And, um, and so that's what we did. We put our heads together and made it happen. Yeah, so uh, th- that makes sense that you encounter, you're looking for, for a, a business to start, a way to make some money, and then you took the advice of 
either not necessarily scratching your own itch necessarily, but then just try, trying to solve a problem that you understand. So you clearly understood a problem, clearly a a, a, a demographic, a, a potential customer. You already were a potential customer. Well, what kind of experience, expertise did, did either of you have at the time to get into basically the jewelry business? Sure, sure. So uh, none on the jewelry business, <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, Felix, absolutely none. But uh, John had built a whole bunch of different websites. He was uh, an entrepreneur of many sorts in the web world and uh, had also had a company that had done some digital advertising. So he knew his way around Facebook ads and Google ads and that sort of thing and also knew how to build a website. Um, I had been an actor and a producer and I knew a lot about branding, you know, from a like performer perspective. And I just was able to transfer that knowledge into products, which was really interesting how easily it transferred. Uh, and so we decided, we set out to, you know, create these different personalities that guys could connect with. And so our whole spiel with Manly Bands in the very beginning and still continues today is matching a guy's personality with the perfect ring. And so our original, you know, 20 rings that we still have on the site, most of them, you know, are like the rock star, the cowboy, the baller, like all these fun things that guys want to be. And it was up to me to sort of try to match a ring with a personality and then come up with for me, what that character would be like. Um, and who is this guy that wears this ring? So I had a ball doing that. Yeah. So it sounds like when you, when you were launching the, this whole exercise of identifying these kind of personas that you go after, did you launch with all of those at first? Like, did you start with select ones? Like what was the, cause it sounds like when you're just talking about it, it could be overwhelming, right? You're launching with all of these different, essentially like markets or sub markets to go into. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And you know, when we started, I think we had about 20 or 30 styles on the mm-hmm. site. Um, we really tried to cater each style to a different persona, a different type of customer. Um, and, and that's what Michelle really excelled at with her product descriptions. And, um, and we really made sure that each style really did fit that persona. So like, you know, if you're an outdoorsy person, we made sure that we had deer antler and some wood and, and got materials like that. If you were more of a, a city person or a corporate type person, we had like really cool metals or carbon fiber, or, um, cobalt chrome, things like that. So it definitely, there was a, it was a process and it, it was a little overwhelming in the beginning. And, you know, as, as we grew and, and started to add more styles and unique materials, um, we kind of have it down to a science now. We have a really yeah. great team and we know uh, what our customers want. We interact a lot with them and uh, we, we give them what they ask for. Yeah. And I could imagine that when you look back, you, you like you're saying now you kind of have it down to size, you, you know, the the methodology or maybe based on experience, you can feel in your gut, like what's the right material, right design to match with the personality. When you look back, were there certain things that either worked way better than you expected or just you thought would work, but just didn't work? Like how rough or how accurate were you with your, with your kind of uh, estimates about what would work with which market? Sure. I think, um, I think it really did start to resonate with guys because they just weren't given any attention in the wedding band process, like John was saying before. And it was so important for us to give them a voice and give them permission to find something that they actually enjoyed wearing. And they had just never been given that permission before. So it was actually really fun when we started interacting with our customers because that was basically, I was the customer service person for the first you know bit there. And it was really interesting hearing what our customers had to say. And I would say to anybody who's new at this, listen to your customers because it helps you pivot and understand what more to get and what less, to, you know, what things to call the herd with, you know, so to speak. And, and get rid of these certain kinds of products. People aren't interested in that, but, oh, they want this. And it's really important to have a little bit of a variety, especially online, you know, when you're selling to so many different kinds of people. Um, but yeah, certainly, you know, we started to see trends in different cities and it was like, oh, okay, people out West are, you know, are ordering the antler or during the winter, we noticed that people would order antler more than in the summer. It was just really interesting to see all that stuff. Yeah. So let's talk about, so once you, once you had this idea, you both had some uh, experience around that that would require skills to launch a business, the branding, the online marketing, that online advertising that was involved. What was the first step to actually getting a, a, like a physical real product made? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we, we honestly, we went to Alibaba and we started looking around to see what vendors had different things. And then we started looking locally too at different, at different vendors as well. And we just tried everything. We tried everything and we found the best products that we could find because we wanted our customers obviously to have the best product. It was about the best product, the coolest materials 
and, you know, matching this sort of personality with them. And so that became the Manly Band's kind of shtick in the beginning and still continues today. You know, that's that's how we sell to our customers. And I would say, too, to, to anybody who's new to this, it's really important to find what your voice is, not only from a brand perspective, but also what's different about your business than everybody else's business. And so those are the things that we were trying to to find in that beginning stage of, of finding that product. Ooh, what's important to us? What was important to us during this whole process? And so those are all the questions that we answered as we looked at different vendors. Yeah, and I can see how that can be like a, a, a guiding, I don't know, star or something to a North Star yeah. for you to know what how to how to make decisions once you understand like why is your business separated from others? Like how can you continue to choose manufacturers, choose designs, choose marketing that continues to amplify this difference that, that you have between your business versus others? And was it as simple as just asking that question to yourself about what's different about us than, than others? Or like what is I think I think a lot of people which are, are kind of stuck here. Either um, they haven't uh, progressed beyond here, or just maybe skipped a step and now realize how important it is. That just don't really understand how to actually sit down and figure this out. Like, how do you figure out what makes you different? How do you figure out what separates you from what's out in the marketplace? Uh, that's a great question, Felix. And I, I think a lot of it begins with market research. So you know, once we we knew what problem we wanted to solve, uh, we had to develop a product that was different from everybody else's. And, and that was kind of our, our goal from the beginning. You know, we, we never really, we didn't launch with a traditional gold ring or a silver ring or whatnot. We, we launched with what we call the cowboy and the rock star and the mountain man. And, and all of those rings uh, are, are super unique, whether it's on the inside sleeve or on the wood or on the, um, you know, the outside finish. And um, we did a lot of market research. We looked around, we, we tried to find other competitors in the space we tried to look and see what they were doing, um, and uh, it, it really gave us a lot of insight and information as to what people were were interested in and, and how we could do things differently. So, and it, that doesn't just stop at the product experience either. I mean, we were looking at other people's policies, return policies, mm-hmm. refund policies, uh, exchange policies, shipping policies. Uh, you can learn a lot about how a business runs by by reading their policies, and in our case. Um, you know, you could easily see, okay, we're going to want at least a, a 30 to 60 day return policy. And, you know, we ended up trying, I think a 60 day return policy at one point, and we quickly learned why people do 30 day return policies, <laughs> and it's, um, you know, and uh, restocking fees, like you, you start to learn and then uh, you take that data and you try to create the best customer experience you can with it. And you're always tweaking and, uh, and iterating, you know, we're, we're constantly, uh, testing slightly different policies to see what's best for the customer. Um, we're getting feedback from our customer service team, our products team, um, and just always trying to make it a better experience. But research is super important. So I highly recommend anybody looking to to start a business uh, to definitely not only look at the quality of their products, but also how their products are being perceived in the market and what other people are doing. Yeah. And I also just, I would add to that, it's important sometimes too, to purchase from these other vendors too. These competitors, you know, would be competitors. If, if you're looking to you know, to produce stainless steel straws, as an example, you know, you start buying stainless steel straws from other vendors to understand what you like about their product or don't like about it, what you like about their customer service experience, what you like about communicating with them. Cause you'll start to learn, Oh, I, I like Zendesk. I don't like it. You know, I like this other platform better. So it's, it really shortcuts a lot of things if you do your research. Yeah, and I think I think one thing I'm, what I'm gonna talk about is this idea of, of of research and data. So you can you know collect and there's access to a lot of data. I think the challenge is then how do you actually make sense of it all? And one thing that I think you guys I talked about was about how you looked at what other other brands are doing, and, and you mentioned that you purchased from other brands and felt went through that experience and saw what you liked, what you didn't like. How do you decide what things are like? table stakes that you, you, you keep the industry, it's the industry standard, the marketplace uh, expects it versus areas that you can basically chart your own, your own path, right? Because I think that's like the challenge, like what do you keep and what do you do differently? How did you, how do you, how do you make those kind of decisions? Yeah, a lot of it's testing. I, you know, it's, it's launching a policy, making sure it's, it's you know, as thorough and comprehensive as you can for what you need it for, for instance, uh, an exchange policy. Um, and, uh, and testing it with your customers. I mean, you have to always watch your conversion rate. You know, you're watching your abandoned carts. You're, you're looking at feedback from people in the chat widget or from the support emails and you're trying to gauge, okay, is this, is this really a good and fair policy? I mean, you always want to do well by your customers. Um, but there's also a line where you needed to make sure that it works for your business too. You know, we, um, 
we experimented with not having a, a small restocking fee. A restocking fee is not very much, but, uh, it, but what it, it really helped us because what was happening when we didn't have a restocking fee is people would come to the site. They didn't know what style they want. They'd buy five, sometimes 10 rings, put it on their credit card, and then return you know, all of them except one. And um, that, would, uh, that would actually be quite a headache when you're doing things at scale because that's a massive amount of money moving around and customer service dealing with these uh, situations and shipping costs when you're offering free shipping and things like that. So, um, so we instituted a very small restocking fee and that, that helped that a lot. That really brought that, um, the rate of those situations happening down and um, it allowed us to kind of decide, okay, is this a good policy to have? And so, uh, so ultimately we kept it. Yeah. And I think for us, that also helps us engage with the customer a little bit more because they want to be sure on the product that they're getting, which is great. So it causes us to be able to you know, engage in a conversation about what's your style? Do you like this? Do you like that? Let's talk about your size. Because for us, you know, one of the biggest hurdles with uh, wedding rings is sizes. You know, people mm. don't really know their size. And definitely guys, because a lot of these guys have never worn a ring before. And that's totally fair. Yeah. So it's nice to be able to have that conversation beforehand. Yeah, I was going to ask that about how you kind of get over that 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 potential friction of, of ring sizing. And just I'm um, exactly what you're talking about where I don't, I never knew my ring size before getting married. I think I already forgot what my ring size is after getting my, <laughs> my wedding band. So what, what is the, I can imagine that being a big challenge, it, even more so than like, you know, buying clothing that fits because you could kind of mm, guess right. and like is way cheaper to buy clothing than something that you're you know going to be wearing for the rest of your life. So what is, how do you, how do you handle that? Sure. So we, we have two different kinds of rings. We have what we call ready to ship, which are rings that are here in our warehouse. They go out right away. And then we have made to order rings. And um, so for our made to order rings, those take anywhere from like two to four weeks. And for those customers, because it's a little bit more annoying to resize those rings, um, we love to send them a sizer first. And so they get the sizer in the mail. And then a couple of days later, we ask them, you know, what felt good. We have a video for them to watch, you know, to use the sizer and that sort of thing. We try to be fun about it. Uh, so we, we definitely take the time to try to get them to give us their size in that respect. We, we did have an app that we were trying for a bit too, but really with, with men's sizes and women's sizes, like the knuckle plays such a big, a big factor in sizing. You really want to have something that you can put over the knuckle. You, you guys can't see me, but I'm, I'm making my ring go over my knuckle right now. And it's super different if I was, you know, to do that as opposed to taking, say, a piece of string and, you know, wrapping it around my finger, which a lot of sites will tell you to do. And, and I'm here to tell you that is not a good way to size your finger. So, yeah. 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 We found that the physical sizers really made a big difference. And, and honestly, we're still trying to, you know, iterate on that too. We're yeah. always trying different uh, ways. We just switched up our sizer design about a month ago. And uh, we're getting better results. So it's, it's always, a, 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 you know, just a, we always try to optimize. And I, I think it's important that no matter what type of business you're in, you're always trying to improve your workflows and processes. And, um, and that's ultimately what we do. Yeah. And I'm curious, too. I think that there's opportunities for this in other industries beyond, beyond a jewelry where you're sending them a, a product already, right? It's something valuable already. Does that help with conversions? People that are getting these sizes, are they much more likely to to convert? Like what is, I think people can kind of get creative here and think about how can you send something as a much smaller scale to kind of get the customer transacting with you? And does that lead to, you know, better conversions? Talk to us about like how much of an impact that, that makes to the conversion process. Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting. We're, we're always asking that. Um, and uh, we're always looking at that data to try to, again, try to, you know, optimize that whole uh, workflow. One thing that we did was um, uh, for a while, we actually gave away the sizers uh, for free. And um, we, we found that not as many people came back to buy a ring. Uh, so uh, we, we then put our price back on it. We took a charge like 10 or $13. Mm-hmm. And um, that we found that more people came back. And I think, I think having that connection, finding people, who are you know willing to transact with your company initially, or they're definitely more likely to come back if they have a good experience. So um, we we found that those people were were more likely to be purchasers, which I think makes total sense. And um, and ultimately the conversion rate up went, went up when we started charging uh, for the sizers again. And and like Michelle was saying, we have two different classes of of rings, and so our MTO ones we actually give the sizer for free as part of the purchase. Um, and ultimately that that dropped our exchange rate uh, and resizing rate down significantly. I think we're for less than 10% right now or somewhere in that area, which is amazing because it, it costs a lot of money to be reshipping out and resizing. And especially when we're paying for shipping both ways. And 
So just another example of when you optimize a process, you can save a lot more money and, uh, and in this case, increase the conversion rate. Well, Makes and sense. one other thing I would add for anyone who's starting a store from scratch, do not choose something that has sizes. It will make your life so much easier. <laughs> or, or at least not 17 sizes. Yeah, like 25 um, sizes. 25 actually, sizes, yeah. Because yeah, we do half sizes. Yeah. Uh, wow. Maybe three or four sizes if you're doing maybe. a shirt or yeah. apparel or something. But, you know, watches, sunglasses, wallets, that's awesome. There's no sizes. <laughs> yeah, and that's funny how, how you don't realize the mess you're getting yourself in beforehand, which oh, I think yeah. is a good thing, right? If you had known how much of a headache it might that's have been, right. maybe, yeah, you wouldn't have gone. Um, I want to talk yeah. about the, the kind of the funnel that's involved. I think, John, I had the same experience as you where I bought my band from wherever my wife bought her ring and her band. Right? I, can't, I was not the person to decide what store to, to buy from. So who's actually going online to search for these or these bands? Is it the – like who is it, is it the, the man that's searching for the, the band? Like what's the, the person that's actually seeking out this product? Yeah. So, you know, I think the younger generation is just more apt to, to look up things online. Um, whether they're, they're looking to purchase online in our case – or looking to do research into what's available, um, they they end up typing in you know men's wedding rings or uh, men's wedding bands, and uh, it's a, it's a very competitive space now. And um, I think most guys are probably just looking to do research on different styles, and then maybe go to their their local store. But um, but hopefully we get in front of them and can convince them that uh, you know with our reviews and with our styles and with our prices that it's it is safe, it is okay to purchase uh, jewelry that is a little more expensive uh, than they, they might find elsewhere. And, um, and it works out. We have a lot of very happy customers. But I, I think you know, most of our advertising is done on Google and Facebook. And of course, Google is more intent-based. So we have a higher conversion rate there where people are looking for rings. They're typing that in. We're getting our ads in front of them. Um, and uh, on Facebook, it's more about just piquing their interest and getting them to check us out. And so we, we target people, of course, based on engagement. And um, in a bunch of other variables, but we find that that um, definitely gets us in front of the right people. And then if we can impress them with really high quality creative, uh, whether that's videos or photos or, or things like that, um, it, it really draws their attention and brings them to the site. Yeah. And in the wedding industry, one thing too that we're finding is that uh, there's a trend where women are buying the men's ring and men are buying the women's ring, obviously, which we're all used to, you know, but, you know, in that community, uh, that it's interesting to see so many women on the site purchasing and it's, mm, it's yeah. fantastic, you know, so we, we are able to engage with, with both or all, you know, all genders, which yeah. is fantastic. Yeah, that, that, that's great. Um, so, so yeah, speaking of it being a competitive marketplace, I can see how Google high intent, the purchase intent. So I can see that, that, that working when it comes to something like Facebook, where you just kind of try and pique their interest, as you had mentioned, John, uh, it's such a tight window though, right? Where they're interested in buying a ring, right? Cause you know, before they ever get close to the wedding or after the wedding, obviously they're not going to be interested in, in the product or in this kind of looking for this kind of product. So how do you, how does that affect the way that you do your, 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 your online advertising? Yeah. For, for the, the non, non high intent platforms. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's uh we still target, like I said, we target like engaged, uh, which, you know, we know that people who are engaged usually post about it on Facebook. I know we did. <laughs> okay. So, so engaged as in like engaged to get married. I was thinking about the oh, word yeah, engaged. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> okay. I got it. Wedding jargon. Yes. Enga- <laughs> engaged in that sense. <laughs> and yeah. so, uh, you know, thankfully they'll, they'll mark that and Facebook has that as a category that you can target. And so that's how we started out. Um, now it's, it's a lot more involved. We're using all sorts of different tools and attribution tools. But, um, but just initially at a very basic level, it's engaged and, um, and that gets us in front of people, the right people. And then, you know, they see our ads. And like I was saying, that, that creative is such a key component. You want to have high quality creative um, and not just pictures of rings. We, we did that for years. Um, but what we found is people also want to learn about the business. They want to see who Manly Bands is, like who, who works here, who is our, our Manly Bands family, as we call it. Um, you know, they want to see lifestyle photos. They want to see people using the product, wearing the product. They want to see customer photos and UGC. Um, it's, it's definitely a, a multifaceted approach to creative. We also have an amazing video team in house that are always cranking out cool and funny videos. We've launched a YouTube series. I think you want people to be able to connect, not just with the product, but with your brand. And the creative is such a key component to that. Hey, Real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. 
Mm, makes sense. Now let's talk about the the launch. So you two had decided this was a problem you want to solve. You wanted to get into it. You started looking for manufacturers. When was it ready to kind of hit the let's go live button and launch this business, launch the website specifically? Yeah, I think we launched uh, mid-November 2016. Um, we didn't put a huge amount of ad budget behind it. I think it was maybe 30 or $50 a day uh, to get going. And um, we we really just, once we had the website up, we had our 20 styles loaded. Um, Michelle was ready for customer service and we <laughs> started running the ads. And uh, we had already gotten uh, a couple of orders in from our, our suppliers and we were just ready to go and, and it was really fun. I mean, we first, of course, you know, we're white knuckled. Here we go. All right. You know, we're spending $30 that we don't have. Let's do this. And, um, you know, then the first order came and it was kind of crazy. And I don't think, and look, we've had 30 failures before a success. So I don't want to make it sound easier than uh, make it sound easy because it's not. Um, but in this case, um, we had done a lot of prep work on the site. We had tried to optimize for what we thought would be. Uh, a good conversion focused site by handling objection handlers like, you know, shipping and customer service and, and returns and exchanges and things like that. And we started driving some traffic and, you know, one day we got one sale and that was probably mm-hmm. one of the most exciting days of our lives. <laughs> and then, uh, besides our wedding, of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, um, it, uh, and then it just started to, to pick up and then we, we constantly were trying to improve the whole process. So we had tried to improve the ads, try to improve the website for conversion rate. And we'd increase the budget $5. And then, you know, it was a slow process. But um, but over time, it snowballed. And um, there's certainly a lot of luck involved, too. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So, yes, slow process. It's, it's, it's not you know, an overnight success. You're just trying to find ways to eke out a little bit better conversion, better performance. Uh, well, what changes do you, do you recall, though, that you realize, like, wow, this actually made a big difference in, in the trajectory of our business? I, for me, um, I would say... Uh, Increasing our ad budget. I, you know, I, I didn't think, um, I thought $50 a day was a lot. Um, you know, it was to us then. To us, yeah. <laughs> it was a lot. And, and, you know, we needed to make sure that we were, you know, going to be profitable to some extent because we didn't have any backing. We've, we've never taken backing. We're completely bootstrapped. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's scary in the beginning when you're, you know, in our case, we were putting stuff on a credit card. So, yep, all on my credit card. Yeah, it was. Uh, I would not recommend that. <laughs> Do not recommend to people. Um, recommend. It's very scary, but yes. um, we got lucky. So, we uh, increased the budget, and uh, it made a huge difference. And unfortunately, and I, I've talked to a lot of people about this. Uh, it, advertising now is very different than it was in late 2016. Um, I don't know if we could have started it like that today. Yeah. It's uh, the marketing, especially on Facebook, is so much more competitive, uh, so much more expensive. Uh, you know, our, our cost to acquire a customer has tripled uh, in the last six years. And I think that's largely just due to advertising online. You know, there's more and more people in it. There's it, our space is a lot more competitive. And um, yeah, but back then, increasing the budget made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Mm, makes sense. And one, one thing you had mentioned, John, was about how you uh, set up these objection handlers on the website, and you, you kind of kind of talked quickly through. But I think there's an important point about how when someone lands on your website, they automatically don't trust things, or they're on guards. So tell tell us more about what objection objection handlers are, and like how to to use them on on, on a website. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like you said, the first thing people do when they come to a site, you know, we've all been educated. Okay. They're just trying to sell me something. You you initially don't trust them, especially I think a website. Like I I think the the D2C space has, has kind of made it so that people are like, Oh, it's a cool company. I'll check them out. Um, But you know, when you can buy stuff on Amazon or you can buy stuff, you know, at these other big platform sites like Walmart or Target sites that you trust, uh, I think going to a website can actually be a little scary. Of course, as an entrepreneur, I go there and I'm immediately like, oh, okay, well, they must be getting their product from here and this is their business model <laughs> and all that crazy stuff. But um, in our case, the most important thing to do was to establish trust. And I think uh, we we initially, and we still do, use lots of reviews, testimonials, mm-hmm. uh, testimonial videos, uh, The um, yeah, having a great review system so people can leave reviews and you know they they what does it say on Amazon verified purchase? Uh, You know, people want to know that other people have had a good experience with your brand and that they can trust it. And that's a big, big part of it. And showing customers with your product and and showing them using it and having it and being happy with it. I think that goes a a long way along with having policies on your site that are clear 
concise, makes sense, and you know, don't scare people away with ten pages of legal jargon. <laughs> uh, you want know, to you want to treat the customer like you'd want to be treated. And uh, if I go to a site and I don't know anything about them, I'm going to want to see an about page. Okay, who? What is this right. company about? Who are these people? Um, what is their philosophy? What is their um, you know, what, what are their goals with this business? What, what charities do they support? Like we've ever since day one, we've, we've always supported a charity. We just did an amazing charity with Jack Daniels um, this past month and raised a ton of money to, to bring soldiers home for Christmas. And um, we're just, we're super proud of that. And I, I think our customers take notice of that and they appreciate that. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that's kind of evolved over time to, to understand like what elements to put on your website that either uh, tell more about your story, but then also to kind of build that trust. Were there things that you've added along the way that, or may, maybe even for that, how do you know what to add to your website? How do you know what kind of objections your customers might have when they land on your site? Yeah. Um, well, I think our customers first started telling us, Hey, I want to see the product on somebody. Can you show it? Cause you know, you have lots of product photography, but it's really important to show as John was saying the product in action. And certainly it's great on a customer, but if you don't have that yet, showing it on a person or how it would, you know, be used in the world. Like if it's a, a backpack or something, you know, show a picture of, of a, a, you know, a person just with a backpack on, you know, and where are they going? Show them in motion, show the feeling that your product is going to evoke, um, you know, in them once they are using it. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and Michelle, you mentioned something earlier on about how the the data started revealing itself to 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 both of you about oh, people in the Midwest like certain types of designs or you know other data that you had discovered. Like, I think I think touching on an earlier point about how the data is available, but then how do you actually make sense of it all? So, how were you able to identify that oh, people from a certain demographic or certain geography like certain rings? Like, what was what's your what kind of tools or like how do you unpack? the data that you've collected? Sure. I mean, initially we were using all of the Shopify analytics and, you know, you can look by product, you can look by region. It's really cool. You can look by city. So it's fantastic what you guys have in order to be able for, you know, folks like us to really dig in deep and see where the products are selling and why. But John, you might have some other tools. That you yeah. I mean, customer service is really also, that's, too, a, yeah. that's huge. I mean, talking with your customers, I, you know, one thing that um, that we've been doing that has been super valuable is reaching out to our customers um, just randomly over email. I'll, I'll just email a customer and say, hey, do you, do you have time for like a 20-minute meeting? I just want to sit down and pick your brain and, and talk to you about your experience with Manly Benz. And you'd be surprised how many people are just thrilled to, to talk to the company and, and actually put a face to the, the name of the company and whatnot. And, you know, we ask them all sorts of questions like, hey, what, what did you find difficult about the website? What made you almost not purchase um, how would you describe us to a friend? And the data that we get from there about our styles, about our processes, about um, how customer service uh, is working out uh, is just invaluable. We learn so much and then we implement those in, in, a ch in changes to, to make us a better company. Yeah, and I think that's an important point about how you want to collect this kind of more like uh, qualitative data by just talking to customers, especially early on when you just don't have the quantity of data that is going to give you any useful information. Just just reaching out, and talking to any customers you have can can be helpful. And you listed some some kind of important questions that that you ask. Were there any that come to mind that you just like, wow, I can't believe we missed this? But a customer said it, and it, it you put it into action, and, and it made a big difference. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the ones that probably impacted conversion rate is when, uh, well, it did impact conversion rate for sure. Uh, when I was asking customers, cause you know, Shopify is so great about kind of laying out the whole, all the customer information and how they purchase and like if they use discount codes. Mm -hmm. And so if I was interviewing or talking, you know, talking to somebody who's a, a discount code, I would ask, Hey, did you have any trouble inputting your discount code? Uh, did you, did you see where that goes? And, um, you know, in the beginning, they'd be like, oh, no, you know what? I had a lot of trouble finding that. And, you know, it was really frustrating. And, uh, you know, I almost left because of it. And then it gets you thinking, oh, my gosh, how many other customers have left because, you know, they, they couldn't find the spot to put the coupon code in. And, uh, you know, we have a discount code listed at the top of our site. And so if, if they come in expecting to use it and then they can't, well, they're most likely going to mounts. And so um, that was hugely helpful. And so we, we found a way to make it more visible in the checkout. Uh, so that you can't miss it. And it, conversion rate definitely bumped up because of that. Yeah, and I just wanted to add too, just all the stuff on the Shopify homepage is so helpful. You know, it's it's a real snapshot on what what people are clicking on. Okay, these products were viewed most often and these were abandoned checkouts. You know, and these are the people who are going to spend the most money in your store. And 
These are how people are coming into you. These are searches that people have put into the search where, you know, it turned up nothing because you don't have a product or a tag for that. That kind of stuff is so easy to grab um, and, and fix right away. Makes sense. And, and Michelle, you had mentioned too about how not only can you see what kind of products again, a lot of activity, but you also mentioned that there's a process of culling products from the, the catalog. What, what's the process behind that? Sure. Um, you, you know, you're looking at what isn't selling essentially. And, and, you know, for us, I think at the time that we did like huge call, uh, earlier in the year, I think it was earlier in 2021, uh, I think we had close to 400 products on the site. And our question was, I wonder if perhaps we could increase conversion rate if we made the amount of decisions a little bit less, <laughs> you know? So, okay, let's have less black zirconium rings. Let's have less Damascus steel. Let's make the decision a lot easier for guys. And so we went through and looked at rings that maybe were a little bit similar, got rid of one, you know, saw if, if our customers were asking for the other one, that sort of thing. So it was a little bit, a little bit of experimentation to sort of like get back to, okay, this is how many products we're going to have now. And I think now we have about 200, 220 uh, products on the site. And we have a whole bunch of rings that are coming this year too, that we already know about some partnerships we're working on and licenses and stuff. So we wanted to make room for those as well. Yeah. And I'm sure those findings too help you decide what kind of new products to add and maybe to be even more selective, right? Like you had mentioned that you've been able to identify products that look similar. So you give it a one so that there's less of this like analysis paralysis that your customers have. What about the, the, when you add new products, how do you do even begin to design and develop the product? How do you test if it's even, if it's going to help by adding it to the, to the catalog versus not? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's quite a, a vetting process that happens now in the old days. It was really like, Hey, this is cool. And let's try it. Yeah. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with just, you know, testing things in the beginning. And, you know, John does a ton of AB tests in all kinds of different respects, but in products now we have a whole process of how we vet something. And, uh, we, we send out customer surveys, which is really, really helpful. There's, um, a bunch of different apps that'll let you try that. And so we ask our customers, hey, do you, you know, would you like to see something with bright colors? Or would you rather see something kind of plain and, and normal? You know, th that sort of thing. It's really important to, to ask your customers and you can do that and they will totally answer you, which is great. I think for a while we were in fear that we didn't want to bother anybody. You know, we didn't, we didn't want to bother them if they didn't want to engage with us. But the truth is people want to give their opinion. They really love to give their opinion. So if you, you know, create a survey and allow them to give their opinion, whether it's on social or whether it's through email or, you know, an exit survey on the site, those things are just invaluable. Makes sense. So once you do design a, a, a product, like how does it actually get created? Like what's the lead time on a design to it being available for someone to buy? Sure. It depends. Um, I, it depends really on the material and, you know, do we have it here or is it something we have to source and all that kind of stuff? So uh, I would say anywhere from, you know, three weeks to two months. It just sort of depends on, on all of it. Uh, we create the ring and then we, our creative team does a whole sort of campaign around it. And then our marketing team gets involved and, and they take over and do their campaign on it as well. So yeah, in that whole process probably three weeks to two months, depending. Mm, got it. And speaking about expanding the product line, I want to talk about a, a, a comment about something that, that had, um, I guess that's a lesson that, that you've learned that you've now employed, which is around this idea of scaling smart, uh, and not fast. Tell us more about what, what this means for, to, to you guys. That's scaling smart and best. <laughs> oh, well, it, it just means using data, really. I yeah. mean, that's that's really what it comes down to. You know, we, back in the beginning, of course, we, we didn't have as much data or we didn't understand it as much. We've learned a lot over the years. Um, and uh, having that data and looking at it from the, the customer surveys that we send out every day to um, to just things that we've, we've learned and our teams learned over time, I think uh, for us, it's a, it is a little bit of a slower process as we've gotten larger. There's a lot more um, intensity involved in, in trying different ideas and more time involved. We make sure it's very intentional when we change something. It's not just a quick little, hey, let's change the color of that button. Like it's, it's actually like a whole process now. And, uh, but it's for the better because what it allows us to do is really focus on, on what matters and then to take those resources to, to test it or to make it happen. So, um, so that's really helped us. And then once we find out something works, we, we scale up. You know, we'll put more ad dollars behind it or we'll we'll send it out to more and more people or we'll, we'll send a larger email list, things like that. So uh, I think it's important to make sure that your decisions, especially nowadays, are backed by data. Right. And everything is optimized before you hit that gas pedal because, 
you're just wasting money if you're just hitting the gas pedal, but you're still flailing and, and trying things. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you're not hitting the gas pedal. What if you're just kind of cruising, right? How? Do, what's your framework for making a decision on whether, okay, that's enough time. Let's kill this experiment and make a decision that no, it's not worth putting any more money into. Let's, you know, let's look at other opportunities versus like thinking that okay, let's just wait, give it some more time. Like, how do you make that decision? What's the framework? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, we we set certain KPIs, certain things that we're looking for for this test or experiment or product to to hit over time. And uh, you know, we usually give most well website tests might be three to four weeks. Product tests typically a six series months, of yeah, months, six months to um, a year, depending. Yeah, and it really just kind of depends. I mean, are we losing money on it? Are we making money on it? Are we, are we making what we want to make on it? Are we really losing money on it. Like obviously the, if you're really losing money, you don't want to wait long. Um, and, uh, if it's something that you're making money, but you know, it's not, you know, where you want it to be, then you have a choice either, you know, okay, let's stop and put our efforts towards something that can really do a better job. Or is there a, a tweak or an optimization that we can make that could change it? I think it's, it's a lot of kind of understanding the process and, and what you're trying to accomplish. And then just, uh, just kind of testing. Yeah. Gut. There's a lot of gut instinct in, in some of this too, right. you know, There's... and you start to, your gut gets more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Gets, gets more attuned to making the right mm. decisions, you know, as you keep testing and as you keep trying things. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. I think there's like an element of needing kind of patience and realization that you're probably not going to get as many answers right at the beginning versus later, right? Because I think a lot of people look to kind of hit it out the ballpark right off the bat. And if they don't, they think, well, this whole thing is a complete failure. I never get better at this and let me just give up, right? But I think that what you're getting at is that um, it, it takes time to kind of develop this muscle to make the right decisions. It really does. Yeah, it's it's so important to have patience um, and, and and a strategy. You need to have a strategy before you launch things or before you test things, even um, just to make sure you don't go over budget. Or, you know, in the in the beginning, like you know, when we were very much spending money that we maybe didn't have, no, <laughs> was, definitely didn't have. we definitely <laughs> wanted to have a strategy. It's like, all right, if yeah. this ad's not working in two days, we're probably going to pull it and try something else um, because we can't afford to lose money on it. So. I think it's really important to kind of set those boundaries in the beginning so that, you know, you don't lose your shirt, you know, as you're trying to launch a business. Mm. And speaking of another kind of big investment is this, uh, the growing team that you have. You had mentioned teams that are all kind of churning once things are in motion to launch a new product. Um, talk to us about hiring and, and growing a team. Like what was that first kind of hire that you had and how did you know that you needed to hire someone? For sure. So when, when we were starting in the garage, uh, we, um, it was crazy. Like, I'll just, <laughs> we'll just throw it out there. It was nuts. Uh, you know, we were wearing all the hats, you know, thank God there's the two of us. Yeah. I, I couldn't imagine doing My it. My parents were our warehouse workers. So yeah. It, it, it was, it was wild. And, you know, Michelle's doing customer service. I'm doing creative for the, the rings, the photos and running Facebook ads and it just uh, the website and all that stuff. It was, it was overwhelming. And eventually it got to a point where we're like, all right, we need help. And, um, you know, I think our first hire, one thing that was really stressing us out was social media. You know, we're, we're advertising on Facebook we uh, and Google, of course, but on Facebook in particular, we have to deal with comments on the ads. We have to be posting. I'm sure you know, and you've talked to a lot of people that have emphasized the importance of social media. That's a full-time job in itself. So, so for, for us, I think our first hire was a social media manager um, who's still with us today. And uh, it's, um, that was a huge help. That took, that gave us a couple hours back so we could then continue doing the warehouse stuff and, and shipping from the garage and running to the post office every day with these big bags. And, uh, I'd, I'd say after that, the, um, for us, it, we had run that ourselves, the warehouse probably for about six or seven months. And it was getting to the point where it was, it was really difficult to have a, to have a life. The work-life balance was, was way off. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, 15 hour day, like it was crazy. So we, um, and this is something I recommend to any entrepreneur, like three PLs are your friend. Yes. And uh, they, uh, we worked with a couple of amazing three PLs um, where we were able to kind of offload the shipping um, and the returns and exchanges, a mm -hmm. uh, reasonable price per order. And uh, it changed our lives. We could then really, really focus on growing the business, creating new and better products, better customer service, uh, faster website updates, better creative um, and, and all of that, it, that's a, that's a hard one because that's a, that's a lot of time, uh, shipping and packaging and exchanging and all of that. Yeah. And it's important too, to find a three PL that has the same values as you too. Cause 
a lot of 3PLs, you know, are, are doing exactly that. They're just shipping your stuff out, but we were able to find um, ships a lot who was amazing. And they just, their customer service is incredible to you as the customer. And they were really great at being able to QCR rings and, you know, when they came in and, and just making sure that everything was perfect when it went into the box. So, you know, it was really nice to be able to rely on, on, uh, you know, a company that, that became friends of ours, you know, it was great. Yeah. I mean, with, with any vendor, especially free PL, I, I highly recommend working with a, a company that is more of a partner yeah. than, um, you know, just, just a vendor, you know, you want, you really want someone who understands you, who picks up the phone when you call. And we had worked with a couple of three PLs prior to uh, working with ships a lot. Um, and, uh, it was, it was a disaster. I mean, I couldn't get customer service. Our stuff wasn't getting sent out. Um, we had trouble with their, their platform that they had, and there was no help, but, um, we found, uh, in ships a lot and in a number of other vendors that we use, it's, it's better if they're partners, like they, they understand what you're trying to do. They want to support you and, and they're there for you. And, and that's really what we try to do now with all of our partners. Yeah. And, and as you are, are you know, working with partners, hiring partners, hiring a, a team, I think one question that you probably are asking it to yourself is like, is my, my unique capabilities, unique skills, unique position, a uh, better use somewhere else rather than on this particular task, this particular function in the business. How do you make that decision? Like, how do you realize, okay, actually it's better use of our time on developing new products. I think this is something that that is kind of hard to decide. Like, oh, I'm not sure if this is something I should continue to do or if my time is better spent somewhere else. How do you know that answer to, is my time better spent somewhere else? Yeah, you know, I think I think for me, it, it came to my experience uh, previous to Manly Bands. You know, I, I had run a marketing, a uh, small marketing agency with my business partner, Scott, at the time. And um, we really got good at that. And that, that was where our strength was. And so, obviously, shipping and returns and exchanges are super important. And we have an amazing team in-house now that, that does that for us. And they're just incredible. Um, but for us, that wasn't where our expertise was. So what we tried to do in the beginning is kind of outsource the stuff that we weren't as comfortable with or as experienced with, uh, so that we could focus on the areas that we understood or, or had, had some more expertise in, um, cause we knew that ultimately that would, that would help us grow faster if we're focusing on things that we understand. Right. Cause those people actually are going to, they're specialized in those areas. Not only do they now have the time and brain space to get to those areas, but they have the know-how. So like our our warehouse manager, um, uh, you know, when we brought him in, he had all of this warehouse experience and just knew all of these things that we didn't know. And it was so incredibly helpful. So I think that's been, you know, a part of every single hire since then. I think if, if John and I were to like actually look at our team now, there's probably about 20, 25 people that do the jobs that he and I used to do, which is amazing, you know, and it's, it's incredible to see that expansion and how much more we can do because of that. Yeah. And they do it a lot better than we ever did. <laughs> like they, they are amazing. We, we found that uh, a general hiring philosophy is hire people that are much smarter than yourselves. And we have a team of some very intelligent, smart and experienced people. And uh, we wouldn't be where we are without them. Yeah, and you know, I think that we—that's that kind of comment about hiring people that are smarter than you—is like something that should not be kind of brushed under the rug because I think there's a hesitancy to think, oh man, if I don't know this stuff myself, then my business is screwed. But like, you can kind of—it's a testament to your success. I think you can kind of pay to 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 cut that learning curve, right? That bring someone in that already knows what they're doing. Like, there's no reason that you need to be a master of it yourself. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's hard. There's so much to learn. I mean, I'm sure as, as all of your listeners have know and experience, like when you're starting a company, you do everything. And uh, there's, there is no school or college that teaches you every single part <laughs> of running a company, especially an e-commerce company. And, and that's all of those responsibilities are changing every day, just as the industry you know grows and marketing changes and whatnot. So it's, it is important, uh, whether it is you're working with, uh, with somebody you hire, who's an expert or an agency or a 3PL um, and, you know, in the beginning, we outsourced everything. We, uh, we had a very small team. You know, our first hire was the social media manager, but then we quickly um, expanded our customer service channels uh, team and uh, okay. photography we, we, we brought in-house. And uh, it really, it just, every, with every hire, a little less weight was taken mm-hmm. off our shoulders. And then we would focus that somewhere else and put the weight right back on. Then we could grow a little faster. So yeah. it, um, it, it all made sense at the time. And, and now we're just surrounded by so many amazingly capable people that uh, it's, um, 
it's, it's fun to come to work because the pressure is not there and we can focus on what we were really good at. And, and that's kind of directionally directing the, the company and making sure, our, yeah, making sure our teams are taken care of and they have what they need and, and all those other CEO type duties that, that help businesses grow. Awesome. Yeah, I think one big project that I'm sure that you're both uh, really focused on are these like partnerships with companies. When you go to your website, like we have uh, Fender, you worked with Jack Daniels, uh, MLB. Talk to us about some of these relationships. How were you able to to create these kind of partnerships? Yeah, so we have an incredible gal on our our staff named Jenny, and she uh, heads our licensing department, and she is just amazing um, at talking to these folks and and getting them on board. And so I don't know all of the amazingness that uh, that she does when she's on the phone with these folks, but she's really been able to go after partnerships that we've been so excited about. Jack Daniels was was such an easy thought because Whiskey Barrel is something that people are putting in wedding bands and something, of course, we're putting in wedding bands and have been for a while. Um, and it was great to be able to find an American brand that is just so, um, so well known. You know, I feel like everybody feels good about Jack Daniels. And, you know, you can go into any bar in the United States and they have Jack Daniels. And so it was just a great, great thing um, to be able to partner with them. And they're just such a fun company to work with, too. And Fender is just a blast. I mean, absolutely. I'm a guitar player. I grew up playing guitar. And so I was so excited when we started going down the road of Fender. Um, And I think, you know, part of all these partnerships is we have to be excited about them. But also our customers have to be excited about them, too. And that's where the surveys come back into play too. Our um, our head of products, Chris, is amazing about sending these surveys out and making sure that customers are interested in this stuff before we, you know, jump down the road. So that I would say is super important. Yeah, some of these some of these relationships and licenses take a long time to to put together. Our, our CMO Stephanie has actually brought Jack Daniels to us and. Um, the amount of work they spent on that. I mean, these are these are big partnerships. There's pages and pages of contracts, and and that's how the licensing world works. But we knew that you know it would all be worth it in the end, and it has been. Uh, both them and us are super happy with the way things have turned out. And uh, and I think it's just a testament to the team. You know, it's the kind of thing where when you have a really great team who are really thinking outside the box, they'll they'll bring these types of ideas uh, to you, and uh, they just hit it out of the park every time. Awesome. So manlybands.com is a website and I'll leave you with with this last question, which is what do you think is the area that you two want to focus on that you think um, will make the biggest kind of uh, change improvement to the business if you could put more attention onto it? Sure. (laughs) So we we spend a lot of money in paid ads. And so one thing we're really working on this year is increasing our organic reach. Um, so we're, we're on a YouTube set right now. You can't see it, but we're really investing heavily in, in video and photo studios here in house, uh, to continue to create the best, uh, ring content for men out there. And, uh, we were growing just content for men in general. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're hoping to expand our lines We're we're, we're international. We're hoping to expand that. And, um, we have our women's line too, yeah. Um, which we launched on rosyraid.com, but we also now have it on Manly Bands as well, some of it, so you can purchase it right there, which is great. But yeah, just getting organic traffic is going to be huge for us and being able to um, allow our customers to connect with the brand in that way too, I think will be you know even better and better as time goes on. Yeah, what's really fun about this business, and I think any e-commerce business, is there's always room to grow. There's always ways to optimize. There's always avenues to pursue and and we're, we're just excited for the future. I mean, there's so many new technologies and platforms and all sorts of things coming out that uh, we're just excited to get in there and, and, and test the waters. Uh, it's, it's a really fun place to be and a great industry to, uh, to be playing in. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, John and Michelle, for sharing your experience and story. Thank yeah, you. thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.